Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Thanks for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. It's Thursday, October 26. The head of the largest labor organization in the Philippines is in Honolulu this week, meeting with local unions who represent large number of Filipino workers. We hear from a University of Hawaii ethnic studies professor about the history of the violent conflict in Gaza. We continue looking at efforts to stop the spread of an invasive species, little fire ants, how Molokai has managed to keep them out so far. We're also taking aim at an invasive fish patrolling the waters off the Big Island. Are the Roy's days numbered? Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's Filipino Heritage Month, and this week the head of the largest trade union in the Philippines is in town. Elmer Labog is the chairman of the group Kalisang Mayo Uno. It represents a cross section of workers in the auto and semiconductor and garment industry as well as transportation. Labog says his group is the most progressive and militant in the Philippines. He's been meeting with labor leaders from Hawaii unions who represent a large number of Filipino members. On the list, the Hawaii Nurses Association, Hotel Workers Local 5, as well as the uh, ILWU and the IBEW. This is the first time the labor group has reached out across the U.S. Labog just came from a Chicago rally for striking auto workers. Hawaii is the last leg on his labor tour. So why Hawaii now? He says we're in the same boat. One of the uh, important uh, issues that workers the world over should fight for is the increase of wages because no matter where uh, a worker is, whether they're in a developed countries like North America and uh, not so developed countries like my country and others, the uh, wage issue is an important one as our wages could not cope up with the ever-increasing rate of inflation here and in and, and other countries. And so this is the major issue where we would like to ask for uh, joint uh, actions to press for better wages uh, in the global context for all workers. Also, uh, I am uh, soliciting uh, support for our uh, co-workers in the U.S. to condemn the ever-increasing violence against uh, working people in the Philippines, especially the increasing numbers of uh, killings in the Philippines, wherein it was underscored by the ILO high-level mission that came to the Philippines in January, that indeed the, the killings are happening. And in fact, the latest victim, Jude Tadeus Fernandez, was the 72nd uh, victim of these extrajudicial killings. We also asked for uh, support for the immediate release of our detained trade union uh, political detainees who'd been languishing in jail for the past uh, three years or more. And uh, that we call on the workers and and the American people to uh, ask the uh, U.S. government to stop funding the military and police who are uh, constantly attacking the uh, workers group in the Philippines, regardless of uh, affiliation. And that this is very urgent at this point in time as the impunity uh, is undergoing in a situation where the anti-worker and anti-people attacks that's been uh, taking place during the Duterte's time has been carried over to the present uh, government of uh, Ferdinand Marcos, Jr. You have been under these different uh, regimes there in the Philippines, uh, these different leaders. Is it any better or worse, you know, with Marcos versus Duterte? uh, You know, how are you viewing this? Well, uh, sadly, as the same policies that were undergoing uh, under uh, Duterte are still being implemented by President Marcos Jr. Uh, For instance, the uh, existence of the National Task Force uh, to end the insurgent in the Philippines is the main attack institution against the very legitimate exercise of rights and interests of workers. This is led by no other than President Marcos himself. We are looking for a, a situation that would change where attacks that were happening should not be taking place 
at present. So we wanted Marcos to prove that he is different from President Duterte's rule. But then the fans are slowly showing and that the same uh, conditions such as illegal arrests and detention and the recent killing of Jude Tadeus Fernandez only in September 29 underscores the fact that this uh, situation prevailing then under Duterte are the same situation still existing. In a matter of a year, his position, there was a rapid uh, increase on the attacks as well as kidnappings and uh, illegal detention to trump up charges existing under the present dispensation. You are here meeting with the different groups, you know, in Hawaii. You know, we're at a time where there is modernization of our shipyard areas at Pearl Harbor. You know, there's uh, increase, uh, you know, construction in places, Guam. If you're calling for a cut in militarization funds, how does that play out in the Philippines? It would be good if the funds that are being uh, sent to the Philippines are meant for workers and people, but then uh, they are uh, being uh, diverted to the uh, military establishments as well as the counterinsurgency program of government were in uh, the conclusions of the ILO, it has uh, pointed out that the uh, counterinsurgency program of government being extended to the uh, uh, trade union movement, also those cases has, that has been filed for long has been acted upon by the uh, previous and present government. And uh, lastly, they have uh, underscored that the police and uh, military are over stepping their mandate in a sense that they are uh, intruding into uh, matters that are purely labor-related matters. These funds that are coming from the uh, taxes of uh, U.S. workers and citizens are not really used for the betterment of the uh, downtrodden workers and people in the Philippines. And therefore, these are the very strong bases that we are calling for the suspension of funding of uh, institutions that are not really working for the benefit of the workers and people in the Philippines. Recently, there is a pending bill in the U.S. Congress, which is the Philippine Human Rights Act, and it includes with it holding in abeyance of funding of the uh, military and police establishments under the present uh, governmental Mr. Marcos. And so we are also calling for support for this bill has been, that has been already supported by several government representatives in the lower house of Congress as well as, as a few senators who would express support for the Philippine Human Rights Act. Well, how do you view the Filipino workforce abroad across the globe? I think this is a black eye to the uh, present leadership in the Philippines as the uh, export of uh, labor has been a stopgap measure uh, that has been uh, adapted during the time of uh, Marcos uh, Sr. But then uh, it has been found out that it is a lucrative uh, way of earning. So this has been uh, uh, amplified and uh, exploited by the uh, complicity between government representatives then under uh, under. Marco Senior and also the uh, recruiting uh, agencies. And so the labor export policy has been an ongoing uh, practice of previous and present governments, especially with the big uh, dollar earnings that they keep remitting to the Philippines. During the pandemic, it was highlighted that with the stop of uh, remittances, then it would affect the economic activity in, in the Philippines gravely. And so this is a continuing thing. However, in the long run, it is not a good uh, program as it leads to the brain drain of the uh, much-needed uh, professions in the Philippines. Lately, there is an existing program here in the U.S. and the Philippines, which is the J-1 visa program. The intention of this program is the cultural exchange. But then this has been exploited, and we, in my visit in the U.S., we find the groups of teachers that have been exploited as they were promised a rosy things when they were recruited in the Philippines, and they had been asked to come out with so much amount of money before they could come to the U.S. But then it was a very uh, 
sad, a very bad condition. As I, I concretely found out, uh, for example, a group of uh, teachers in Baltimore where uh, they had been adopted by the Teachers Federation there as when they arrived in the U.S., there were no uh, residences for them and uh, promised jobs uh, in schools that were being uh, promised in the Philippines were not present when they landed in the U.S. So things like this are, are not uh, acceptable and that uh, it exploits labor for in the Philippines that are coming to the U.S. In the long run, we wanted to have a program where the sector of agriculture should be developed and that the increase of uh, the purchasing capacity of uh, the big number of population should be improved mm -hmm. and thus this would arrest the massive exodus of professionals and skilled workers to other countries such as the U.S. and the European Union. Without the uh, agriculture uh, development, there will be no basis for establishment of industries as still existing now and that this will be the guarantee that uh, more jobs and the ability of uh, the people to purchase goods and services will be guaranteed. That was Elmer Labog, head of the largest trade union in the Philippines, who at this hour is joining an informational picket line set up by those in the airline industry at Honolulu's airport. Support for The Conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC, designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com. Hey there, it's Michael Barbaro, host of The Daily. Join us for an in-depth look into the world's biggest stories. Catch The Daily Monday through Thursday at 1.30 here on HPR One. Support for HPR comes from the Arn and Ruth Werchick Charitable Fund. Learn more about the Arn and Ruth Werchick Masters of Library and Information Science Scholarship awarded annually by Friends of the Libraries Kona at folkhawaii.com. Hawaii Ethnic Studies Professor Ibrahim Aude recently gave the keynote address at the 8th International Middle East Symposium in Istanbul. His work often focuses on the Palestinian struggle within a global context. He talked with the conversation Stephanie Hahn from Turkey to give historical context to the current Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What do you think are the very basic origins of the current conflict that we are seeing between Palestinians and Israelis. Uh, Ilan Pape, an Israeli whose parents were uh, Holocaust survivors, had written several books on the question. One of them was The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. But there are a lot of other uh, Israelis also who have uh, written about. That's the first thing. The second thing that's important to note is that uh, the Balfour Declaration of uh, November 2nd, 1917, where uh, the British government, uh, His Majesty's government, you know, committed itself to having a national home in Palestine for the Jews, provided, and I'm here paraphrasing, provided that it won't uh, affect the, uh, uh, the well-being of the non-Jewish communities. The non-Jewish communities were the overwhelming majority of the population, Christians and Muslims, yeah, uh, in Palestine. And uh, the Jews, even at the height of the immigration to Palestine in uh, 1948, were 600,000 people only. 
you know, in the 1880s and so forth, Jewish immigration from Russia mostly. Although they were farmers in Russia, the soil and the topsoil and everything is different and the weather, etc. So they didn't know exactly what to do in terms of farming the land. So Palestinian farmers were helping Jewish farmers, you know, and they worked with them and for them, etc. And uh, they were living fine together. Uh, they were like about 20,000 or 10,000 uh, Jews, Arab Jews. They were Arab, but, you know, they were Jewish. Like, you know, I am Arab, I am Palestinian, I am Christian, I'm not Muslim. And there are other, uh, you know, Palestinians, majority is Muslim. Like 15% of Palestine, uh, Palestinian population is Christian. You know, I'm one of them. There was obviously World War II, the genocide. Can you please bring us up to speed historically what then came to pass? Uh, Palestine was uh, a colony under British rule. Uh, and so there, were, uh, there was immigration, uh, Jewish immigration from all over, like especially from Russia in the 19th century, 1880s, and so forth. But in the 1920s, 30s, etc., they increased that, uh, you know, population increased. The, uh, the Zionist organization, uh, World Zionist organization, uh, wanted to colonize Palestine and create uh, not a national home for the Jews as the Balfour Declaration had promised them, uh, but uh, they wanted to have like a full-fledged state, a Jewish state, which right. means if it is a Jewish state, you got to get rid of non-Jews. You know, that's uh, the idea. The question of the Balfour Declaration is that you have a colonial power promising someone else or groups of people, promising them the land of uh, the indigenous people of Palestine. <laughs> World War II, we know the Nazis, what they did, and the Holocaust. Then they said, well, all the more reason to have a state for right. the Jewish people. But that means, like, my family would have to go out. Three quarter million uh, Palestinians were kicked out, ethnically cleansed. And then in 1947, uh, the United Nations voted to have two states, one Palestinian and one Jewish. And the problem with that was that the Jewish population by World War II were like about 600,000, and the uh, Palestinians were um, over a million, million two hundred. Uh, you know, million, million, quarter, what have you. The UN partition resolution of uh, 1947 uh, gave 55% of Palestine to uh, the Jewish population of 600,000 and 45% of Palestine to the Palestinians, <laughs> who were like a million, million, quarter. Is this what uh, they call Nakba? The period? Uh, yeah, the Nakba is uh, the ethnic cleansing of uh, Palestine, May 15th, 1948. So with the establishment of the state of Israel, there then became two territories, Gaza and the West Bank, that were Palestinian, correct? Well, uh, what happened was Gaza was given to be administered by the Egyptians, because it's closer to Egypt. And the West Bank uh, basically was given to be administered by the uh, Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, which we call now Jordan. And then it was annexed in the 50s um, to Jordan. So it became Jordan and no more Palestine. <laughs> this is a colonial uh, you know, arrangement, uh, absolutely, because Jordan was basically you know, a, uh, under the thumb of the British at that time in the 50s. And uh, that was a British project. And, of course, American Zionists also were in, uh, in on it. Uh, but uh, the Americans were not yet, uh, had done full force out of the United States until, like, 1950s. And then by 1956, they took over, you know, so they kind of deposed the French colonial rules uh, British colonial rules, and they took over those areas uh, to become under their influence. Like 
would have uh, influence in Lebanon and Syria and you know these uh, all, all these other countries Jordan etc etc do the Palestinians support Hamas do you think that this group is a reflection of the Palestinian people first of all you know there are multiple groups there are secular groups there are groups uh, that have uh, uh, come out from Islamic tradition etc and uh, there are other groups that have uh, Muslim and Christians in it, you know, fighting groups, I'm talking, uh, but they are secular. So all of these groups are a representation of the Palestinian people. Uh, the African National Congress at one point was deemed a terrorist, and uh, Mandela was put in jail for, for over 28 years or something like that. And he was branded as a terrorist, you know. So we know this story. If you are in a pressure cooker and uh, you have uh, no water, uh, no potable water, you know, your kids um, are deprived of, of the micro, uh, micronutrients, et cetera, et cetera. And if you are a fisherman and you cannot go to fish because Israeli uh, military patrols shoot you, and, and all of that. So what do you expect them to do? Just like roll over and play dead or die? That's not going to happen. Even like you ask any American, you know, who believes in uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, they tell you they would fight for their own country. A lot of people are familiar with this term apartheid because of South Africa. And what are the definitions mm -hmm. of an apartheid state? Um, apartheid state meaning like you who have a discrimination. And uh, the uh, Arab population in, uh, you know, 1948 Palestine uh, is really discriminated against. A, an Arab village, for instance, would not have the same uh, services uh, as a Jewish village. Like I have cousins uh, live in Nazareth. And Nazareth is a, is a big uh, city. You, you cannot have permit uh, to, uh, you know, expand your house or to build another house because they don't want you to increase your, you know, family and so on. So what happens is that if they don't give you enough money for education, uh, don't give you permit to, to rebuild or build or expand the house. Uh, and then the question of citizenship, like the Arabs, the Palestinians in Israel are Arabs and they are citizens of Israel. However, uh, they don't have the same right as a Jew. And if you look at uh, their passports, two different colors. If you're a Palestinian Arab, you have a different color passport than the, <laughs> than the Jewish guy. So uh, there is also discrimination between European Jews and Arab Jews who come from North Africa, Iraq, Egypt, uh, you know, all of these places. There's discrimination against them. And in fact, the Palestinians are third or fourth class citizens because there are African Jews also from Ethiopia, etc. These would be like third class and then the Palestinians would be fourth. So that is apartheid, whichever way you would want to define it, this is apartheid. The problem with that is that the United States is supporting it. Do you see that it's possible to have peace in this region, what would be the conditions for there to be ceasefire? Right now, we're witnessing the bombing of a population that's almost 50% under the age of 18 in Gaza. Yeah. We also have the turmoil of 200 hostages that were taken. It seems that it's escalating. What yeah. do you see can be done to de-escalate? You know, the United States has the wherewithal and uh, that can pressure to stop the bombing right now. But my question is, why isn't the United States doing this? So I leave that as a rhetorical question that the people answer. Well, you know, yesterday, 100 people died, you know, and most of them women and children. Uh, the thing, though, is uh, if you want to have peace, the U.S., just like that, can uh, can tell them to stop. You know, that's one. And then sit at the table. Peace would be right of return of the Palestinian people and get rid of the apartheid state and have one state 
where Jew, Christian, Muslim, or Buddhist, or whoever can live as one person, one vote in Palestine, all of Palestine. That was UH Professor Emeritus Ibrahim Maude talking to HBR's Stephanie Hahn about the historical context of the longstanding Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art's Homa Nights, open on Fridays and Saturdays until 9 p.m., offering experiences including dining, live music, and art making. Learn more at honolulumuseum.org. HPR invites you to our Sound Salon series. These in-person events are happening in November at our Atherton studio in Honolulu. Join fellow music fans as your favorite HPR hosts guide you through deep dives into their favorite tracks. Admission is $10. Seating is limited. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org slash events. Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. Catering available for business meetings and events, rubytuesdayhawaii.com. It's now time for our reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat Deputy Editor Nathan Eagle on with us today. The subject, a proposal to plant invasive grasses on Maui. Good morning, Nathan. Hey, Nathan, are you there? You seem to be having some technical difficulties. We will move on to our uh, next story. Um, Do we get Nathan back on the line? On guard, so far, Molokai has been able to keep out a number of invasive species, whether it be little fire ants, coconut rhinoceros beetle, or koki frogs. We checked in with the Molokai Maui Invasive Species Committee about the need to stay vigilant. The committee's Lori Buchanan spoke with us yesterday afternoon about its success in keeping the critters from getting a foothold on the Friendly Isle. We do on-the-ground type of grassroots outreach to people, I believe people of Molokai are very cognizant of invasive species, not just fire ants, but all of them. And most recently, there's coconut rhinoceros beetle that has been in the news a lot. Our community is really vigilant. They're very well informed as a community would go. And I don't think moments would be as successful if we didn't have tips from the public and simply people being responsible of not transporting invasive species, knowing the pathways. And so we depend on our community a lot because all of the invasive species committees are really based on a relationship. And because we don't have any enforcement capabilities, such as the Department of Ag, so we really, really depend on the relationships we have with our community to be the eyes and ears for us. And then on the ground doing the diligence of actually baiting, trapping, and looking for it. So you're really on your own and you just have to educate people, be on guard. That's true. And give them the opportunity to report them to us and for us to follow up on report. Also to keep our ears to the ground because Molokai is a small community. It's hard for you to not know what's going on if somebody's doing a project, for instance, where they might be bringing in landscape material. Also to conduct outreach to the stores or the organizations that would be shipping in stuff like we saw recently with the CRB soil, topsoil, and other products like plant, landscaping plants, everything that could be a vector because we know that people are the main vectors for transporting invasive species between the islands. So 
whether it's compost or anything else, I mean, you're really trying to be proactive, not reactive. Yeah, we're trying to be proactive. And I think especially since COVID, because, you know, during COVID, we couldn't go door to door. You couldn't really react with the public, which we're so used to doing, being really engaged with the public, but also having to still do your job because shipping doesn't stop. You know, planes don't stop and boats don't stop. So it was difficult. And so coming out of COVID, reestablishing those ties to try and still have communication with your community in whatever capacity. We've been really trying to work hard on that. Most recently, because of the CRB, we always assume that it's going to get here. For us, it's catching it as soon as we can. Because it's incipient species, we all know that prevention is the most cost-effective way of preventing invasive species because once they become established and start to naturalize, it's nearly impossible to eradicate. And so that's why a lot of our focus is on prevention. Well, it's encouraging you know, to know that Maui is making progress there in Nahiku and also to learn that Lanai had some cases of fire ants, and uh, they were able to eradicate it there as well. You know, and I don't know what the situation is in Koholawe or or Ni'ihau, but the fact that you folks have just been able to keep the ants out is positive. Yes, and again, it's really, I think the credit goes to our community being informed and vigilant about not wanting to see the resources here affected more than it is by invasive species. You know, as an organization, we know how costly and time-consuming it is to start to treat targets. But again, it's the community that chooses not to bring that plant with soil or chooses to really wash their car very good if they're going to put it on Young Brothers. Or even what we find on a regular basis is somebody has to bring some something over for some reason, maybe some ag crop or shipping goods from Hilo, where they know there's an infest problem, they'll give us the heads up and I'll actually go, we'll go, or staff will go to the Young Brothers port and try to do an on-site inspection to just add another layer of oversight, but we can't do that if the public doesn't call us and give us the heads up. So the fact that they feel comfortable enough to call us and know that they're not going to be ostracized or scrutinized, but really thankful for the maka'ala, you know, because they really do care. Community really does care about our resources. You know, you talk about the Young Brothers. I mean, I remember, you know, that whole flap about the super fairy and the concern about invasive species, you know, coming over in somebody's wheel well on the car or the truck, you know, or whether it's on construction material, you know, the solar panels, that kind of thing. You just don't want those hitchhikers. Yeah, and we have had hitchhiking in the past on Molokai with Koki Frog, and we were able to nip it in the bud. That was not very recent. It was uh, before COVID, but, you know, for instances, was um, koki frog in leaf litter in the bed of a truck shipped from Hawaii Island or roofing material from a big box store or, you know, in plant material. So the businesses here on Molokai that actually have to ship goods are aware of, um, they're aware of the possible impacts from hitchhikers. And so if they even have a a thought that they might be importing stuff, they'll come and ask us to do a check. And I really appreciate that. And And we really make it known that we really appreciate that oversight. Most of the times it's negative, but I think maybe about four times we've caught frogs that way. Wow. Coming over in, yeah, in goods. And so we always look at the point of origin of where the goods are shipped. But, you know, it's so difficult, um, Catherine, to track. And that's how come the last line of defense is actually Molokai and the ports of entry, you know, either by air or sea, but people. Yeah, it's educating people again. 
Well, uh, what other critters have you managed to uh, detect and keep out? <laughs> well, we mostly deal with plants, but we've also are, we're the only invasive species committee to target a marine species, not for eradication, but for control, primarily because of the area in which we detected it, which is the main wharf on Molokai, but it also was designated as a swimming area. So children would swim in the designated area, and we found actually a parrot brought it into us, um, upside down mangrove jellyfish. And so it was helpful to the community for us to start to control it. And we did find that it was successful. Yeah, I remember that, the stinging jellyfish. And even though you might find it in other areas on Molokai, in a fish pond, maybe in East Molokai, they're not stinging people at the Molokai Wharf anymore. And once we got control of the primary infest site, you know, you have to check farther a few times. And so it's not so heavy a lift to keep that area free for our children to swim in because Molokai has only one public pool. And sometimes it has to shut down indefinitely for long periods of time for maintenance. And so the wharf is really heavily used um, by our community. Yeah, so whether it's stinging jellyfish or cookie frog or little fire ant, yeah, or coconut rhinoceros beetle, yeah, you just want to keep them all out. Correct. <laughs> well, we we wish you could put a, we have a sign. We should put a big sign at the airport. The only basis. <laughs> yeah, can we? <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you talking with us. All right. Thanks thank again. Thank you, Catherine. We appreciate you guys. Mahalo. All right. And that was Lori Buchanan with the Molokai Maui Invasive Species Committee talking about the efforts of the community to keep the little fire ant and other invasives out of the Friendly Isle. Okay, back to the reality check. Uh, Nathan Eagle with Honolulu Civil Beat is on with us today. The subject, a proposal to plant invasive grasses on Maui. Hey, Nathan. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. You know, when I saw this headline early this morning, I was like, come again? (laughs) Did I read this right? You weren't alone. Uh, When I was talking to some experts about the issue or others or even the faces of some of the House Finance Committee members who... I went on a field trip with yesterday and heard this news. We're all a little, uh, really? Um, some seemed to not in agreement, but others had kind of looks of um, dumbfoundment. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, the the grasses, the uh, non-native grasses were fuel for the wildfires there on Maui. Exactly. So, so yeah, so we went up to Kula uh, with the Finance Committee and met with Michael Constantinidis and other members of the Natural Resources Conservation Service. And he had, did something that surprised at least one representative, Gene Ward, which was not ask the Finance Committee for money, but rather for help mess- with messaging, because his plan uh, is, one, is one of those, that, you know, at first glance, you're like, huh. Uh, and his plan that he, uh, the NRCS uh, plans to propose uh, as soon as in a couple of weeks, really, uh, once his crews are done with damage assessment reports, is to drop by drone or helicopter or plane um, tons of seeds of invasive grasses, the, the same kind that were fueling the Lahaina and upcountry in Palehu fires uh, on August 8th. I just don't understand why we can't maybe put some of that money toward, you know, planting natives. You're not alone there. I talked to Christy Martin and other uh, alien pest species experts, and and they're not convinced that there aren't other options or there should be other options. Um, Michael of the NRCS said that there just aren't enough native seeds to do this kind of like landscape scale, watershed scale uh, replanting that that he's going to uh, propose. Um, And that, uh, furthermore, he said the idea of doing nothing is, is far worse than, than dealing with the same invasives, uh, invasive grasses that kind of already cover about a quarter of the, the landscape anyway. Um, but it's, it's working quickly to, to get this pushed through because uh, they want to do it, uh, at least in large part, 
ahead of the rainy season, the wet season, um, because that's when they're very concerned that uh, heavy rains could wash a lot of this uh, very, very loose soil that just really has no vegetation holding it down in some of these burned areas anymore, you know, into streams and, and into the ocean and really cause some damage there. So they're looking at it as lesser of t- two evils. I mean, it just seems like, wow, this could be an opportunity for reset, you know, with those invasives. But if they're looking at, you know, what's available now, be interesting to see what happens. It's exactly it. And that's kind of what he said at the outset. It's, we're not thrilled with these options. We, we, we don't want native, or, you know, forests to be, <laughs> you know, have more invasives in it, let alone do it intentionally. But it was... Very much, the, it's the lesser of two, and it's the, the route that he, being an expert in this field, is, is strongly um, supportive of and encouraging. And and so we'll know more, uh, again, in a couple of weeks when they get those damage assessment reports done, and then they'll run it up the USDA chain for funding and approval, um, what, you know, exactly what species, if it's buffalo or guinea or other invasive grasses, uh, what ones they choose and exactly where, and all those kind of details would, would come later. But... That's the direction they're headed now, and he wanted these House Finance Committee members to uh, understand where they're coming from and, and why they're going to be making this kind of proposal. Do we know if they're going to plant anything like halicoa? That was never mentioned, so I don't think that they would plant anything like that. They, they mentioned buffalo, um, guinea, um, fountain, a couple other grasses, um, but, so I suspect it would be one of those, but they'll nail that down for sure uh, All right. later. Okay, well, thank you so much. Really interesting story. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, That was Nathan Eagle with today's Reality Check. You can read the full story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash Maui Strong. I'm Carol Hills from The World. Each day our program gives you a chance to step outside our borders, to hear what's going on around the planet and to hear how events in America are seen across Africa, Europe, Asia, and the Americas. Our producers and reporters dig deep to find stories that connect you with what's happening worldwide. That's why we call it The World. Join us. Starting this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. is underway to learn more about an invasive species impacting native fish colonies in waters off the Big Island. HBR reporter Kuvehi Reishi joins us to talk about the predatory Roy. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, the peacock grouper, better known in Hawaii by its Tahitian name, Roy. Uh, fishing communities across Hawaii, including those in Milolii in South Kona, have been sounding the alarm on the invasive Roy for years. Uh, for those of you who may not have seen this fish, go Google it, go online. But there are these dark brown fish with small iridescent blue spots and purple fins, very familiar to our fishing community. Uh, they can grow up, to up, uh, grow up to two feet in length. And one of the big drivers of its sort of dominance on the reefs is not having any natural predators here. So they've become 
these dominant inshore predators, very similar to the puhi or the eel. It just sort of scrounges up and eats pretty much anything. Baby fish, baby crustaceans, they love it all. Uh, hey, a native and environmental policy student, Kainalu Kili'ikuli Grace, uh, spent his summer creating a baseline study on Roy and Milo'li'i because they had not had a, done a lot of research, but they know the Roy are very much present in Milo'li'i, and that uh, his research was actually done largely or based largely on kilo or observations like these. The one crazy thing I noticed with like behavior is you go and you're following Puhi and you're going to find Roy. Every time you follow the Puhi, you're going to find Roy because, you know, when the Roy, when the Puhi goes into um, like these small crevices and stuff that the Roy can't necessarily fit into, it all the baby, the poor eel, the all the baby fish, they come, they fly out scared of the Puhi. And the Roy is just right there to go and snatch them up. So it's kind of like, I don't know if this is a symbiotic relationship. It's more just kind of like, oh, these Roy, they peel out, taking advantage of the Puhi over here. Interesting. So where, where you yeah. find an eel, you'll find Roy. <laughs> and that's something that, you know, fishermen, uh, our knowledge that I think uh, many fishermen have, or fisher people, have uh, experienced over the years in sort of figuring out who are these Roy, what do they do, what impact are they having, and how can we catch them they're ambush predators there's uh, a behavior where they'll just float there and act like you know they're like a dead fish and then prey will come by and then they'll oh get no kidding snatch <laughs> yeah um but a 2020 study uh, by noah found uh, the noaa found the average roy can eat up to 150 small reef fish per year and uh, in Miloli'i, 18 miles of the coastline there was designated last year as a community-based subsistence fishing area. So there are fish that the community is trying to protect in order to boost populations. Fish like kole and uhu, which are seeing declines uh, statewide, but also pakuikui, which is a favored fish there in Miloli'i. But the Roy work counter to that. So Kili'ikuli Grace in, examined the stomachs of about 50 Roy from the Milali'i reefs and found, you know, your typical spread of small reef fish, oama, kole, manini, but especially reds like uu, ala'i, and avilvel. Uh, two of those three, of course, are protected under that CBSFA. Some of the big Roy's I shot, I was like, oh, if I see, I opened the snowies and minpachi, I'm like, I would shoot this minpachi and eat it too, you know what I mean? Like, this thing isn't small. And, like, we kind of opened up the stomach of the minpachi too because it was still intact. And he was, she was all ready to go. She was all, her egg sac was all full. So it's kind of just sad to see it. Like, yeah, these things have a major impact. And it's not only just eating the native fish, but these smaller roy, they go and they like the invertebrates. So baby ula, the baby lobster, um, baby shrimp, all this kind of stuff that, you know, one Moana Kali or all these other fish that we love, that's their food source too. So it's not e not only um, eating these native fish, but it's competing for food sources also. It likes all the fish that I like to eat. <laughs> <laughs> right, Roy. So Roy were introduced to Hawaii during the territory to help boost our fishing stocks. It was one of about 20 species of snappers and groupers that were introduced over the period of five years starting in 1956, uh, other species introduced at the time that might be familiar to us also with the Tahitian name, the To'o and the Ta'ape, uh, which has been wreaking havoc on the Kona crab on the uh, south Kona on the Big Island. Uh, but they dropped a little more than 2,300 roy in Hawaiian waters. And by the 1980s, the roy population had skyrocketed much, you know, due to their sort of predatory nature and not really having anybody to compete for uh, food, um, increasing 15-fold the population uh, to about 35,000. Uh, but ever since Roy was linked to ciguatera food poisoning, Roy has been off the menu in most households in Hawaii. So you've got this invasive predator taking over the reefs uh, where, that nobody really feels safe eating. And so... Ciguatera uh, fish poisoning, of course, uh, can cause nausea and vomiting, something we take seriously. Uh, a 2009 UH study on ciguatera in Roy found an 18% positivity rate. And the state at the time was uh, um, developing free SIG tests or 
distributing, providing free cigarette tests to fish to the fishing community. Some might remember those little dipstick uh, tests, but those tests turned out to be a bit sensitive and inaccurate uh, with lots of uh, false positives, so they discontinued that. The state health department did say it is working with the FDA for testing SIG in fish and coming up with an option uh, for folks, but the only other option for fishing communities Currently, our lab test offered uh, up at UH, which can cost three to four hundred dollars, not something uh, a community like uh, Milolii would like to uh, take up. So Kili Equally Grace did some research and found that Fijian people actually love eating roy. But they also have problems with their cigarette in them. So what they'll do is they'll cut into like the spine or the tail end of the fish. And I get some mean pictures. It's like the bigger ones. You look at their blood and it's like dark purple or clumpy or gross. But these smaller ones, it's, you know, the meat is still all white, still like real small, like nice blood. To kind of back that up, I noticed that they also use like the village cats and stuff in Fiji. And I was like, oh, I'm in Miloli. I get cats, I get mongoose, I get eels. We go try. Yeah, one of the village cats, Elhu, she was the best at that because she went probably like 20 for... 20 for like 25 on guessing whichever ones had the clotted blood, she'd walk right past. Oh, so basically <laughs> it's kind of like the reverse of the of the dogs, uh, the drug sniffing dogs at the airport, right? <laughs> so the cats will bypass those fish that might have ciguatera. The Yeah, and this, you know, you'd need more rigorous uh, tests to confirm these findings as, as something that you should follow, uh, you know. Um, as a standard, but these initial observations and, of course, screening methods done in other places in the Pacific have been useful in helping Mililii better understand uh, the impacts of Roy on its reefs and, you know, over the years, tr- continuing to use those methods and see if that's something that could work in the community is definitely on uh, the table. But the most effective tool in reducing Roy's impacts on local fisheries has been those Roy roundups, right, those fishing events. And Kili Equally Grace's initial uh, sort of kilo and observations have helped Miloli improve their next roundup. He says, you know, uh, Males in Milolii, the Kane Roy, have orange tips on the pectoral fins and they're lunar spawners. So target those orange tips, have the Roy roundups on a poi poi moon, and as he mentioned earlier, always follow the puhi. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I know they've had those tournaments up on the Oahu's North Shore, which I've covered before, and that's right. been interesting. But yeah, if they've just had more of them, I guess. Right, and they, they've been massive. There have been uh, roundups pretty much on every major Hawaiian island, uh, but those uh, gatherings um, are also an opportunity for fisher people to have dialogue, right, and discourse, discussions about what they're seeing in terms of how Roy is impacting their particular communities. Interesting. All right, well, thank you so much, Kuvei. Uh-huh. We've been chatting with HFAIR's Kuvei Hirishi to read these stories. Head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. does it for us today up tomorrow it's a hanaho show on our fledgling craft chocolate industry got a story to share call our talk back line 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org if you want to listen to past episodes you can find the conversation podcast on spotify apple or anywhere else you tune in for your podcast i'm Catherine cruz join us tomorrow for more of the conversation